Once thought to be a problem mainly in healthcare settings, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus is becoming increasingly common in the community. How can MRSA spread through the environment? How can this spread be prevented? And what are some special considerations for managing MRSA in public settings, such as schools and athletic facilities? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focused on healthcare policy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Jeffrey Hageman, an epidemiologist and MRSA expert in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Welcome, Mr. Hageman. Thank you. First, let's start off by talking about how common MRSA is in the community. Well, MRSA first started to emerge in the community in the late 1990s, in 1999. The regular staph has always been a cause of infections in the community, predominantly skin infections, skin and soft tissue infections, the abscesses. MRSA emerged in the community in the early 2000s and, and really has taken off. What is the main way of spreading MRSA through a community? Is there an environmental spread or is it mostly person-to-person? MRSA and, and staff, just like staff, is, is spread primarily through close contact, direct contact from people, or indirect contact. If somebody has an infection, it gets on an, an item like a towel, it can be passed between people. In hospitals, staff and MRSA is typically spread on the hands of healthcare workers, unwashed hands of healthcare workers. Now, are there some common th- risk factors that an area might have that might put people at more risk of, of getting MRSA? So people getting infections that are at highest risk are people who have breaks in their skin. So in hospitals, people who have catheters in, people who are undergoing surgical procedures. Out in the general community is the people who are getting scrapes and cuts, typically athletes, military recruits, children. Staff loves to invade at those sites. Healthy skin is a great barrier against these infections. What about sharing items that might be contaminated? So we see that those may play a role. The role of those is a little bit more unclear. In athletic settings, for instance, there are so many opportunities of skin-to-skin contact that is very difficult to rule out that skin contact as the source. But it is a possibility, and that's why when we look at prevention strategies, we need to take all of these components into effect. One thing that we do think, though, is that in general, overall, the general environment, like a playing field, football field, a weight bench, those play very little roles in transmission of these infections. Is there a certain amount of time that staph or MRSA could survive on a surface that somebody might come in contact with? Staph can survive in the environment. That's a fact. How long it can survive depends on the conditions. Um, In controlled laboratory studies, people have been able to get staph and MRSA to survive on surfaces for up to months keeping into consideration that the environment isn't a natural reservoir of staph or MRSA. So if it gets in the environment, it's because it comes from a person. And typically we see that in these settings is it's somebody who doesn't realize they have an infection. It's uncovered, it's draining pus, and it gets onto the surface or the item. That could be a way that staph transmit. However, when you actually analyze that as as a process of getting infections, going from a person, having a high enough bacteria deposited on a spot on the surface, somebody coming along that's susceptible, they have a break in their skin, they have to contact that exact same surface, have to pick up a certain number of bacteria, then they don't wash it off, 
and then their body doesn't fight off that initial invasion. There's so many steps that is another reason why environmental role doesn't seem to be play that much of a role in transmission of MRSA, and it's more of this skin-to-skin contact. The other possibility of MRSA or staph, while not clearly understood, is the role of colonization. So we know that one out of three people carry staph on their body, typically in their nose. However, if you carry staph in their nose, it's, all, it's usually always on your hands as well. It's on other parts of your body, usually those warm, moist areas that staph likes, groin, axilla. MRSA, only about one out of 100 people carry MRSA, and typically those people who carry MRSA have some contact with healthcare. So the general healthy population isn't carrying MRSA. So people could also, that are carriers, give themselves infections. So they have a break in their skin, they touch their nose, they pick it up on their hands, and then they touch their infection. Again, these all of these pieces help inform our prevention strategies to prevent these infections from occurring in the first place, like if you have a break in the skin, ensuring that you're covering those those areas. So even if so many people are colonized, the environment doesn't play that great of a role because then the recipient of the infection would need to have broken skin. So is it not important then to try to clean surfaces to get rid of any staff or MRSA that might be there? And I'm talking about like household, kitchen countertops, bathrooms, shopping cart handles, school desks, things like that. How important is it to keep those surfaces clean? It's still important to keep those surfaces clean not only for staph and MRSA, but but other types of infections, other types of viruses. The effort to control MRSA should not be focused first on the environmental. What we know from our experience in outbreaks is that there is poor recognition of what these infections look like. So many people have them, they're uncovered, they're allowing that to transmit between people. And there's often suboptimal hygiene practice People aren't showering after they have that skin-to-skin contact. Wrestlers coming off of competition aren't showering. The bacteria remains on their skin. They have the breaks in their skin, and then they can get infections in those sites. So while the environment isn't a first, one thing we don't want people to do is it's often easy to target the environment. It's difficult to have people change their behaviors to shower more frequently, but that's another reason why we need to have more efforts to to educate the general public of the prevention measures and, and what MRSA is. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy, on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Jeffrey Hageman, an epidemiologist and MRSA expert at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We're discussing MRSA in the community. Now, one practice might be more frequent showers, better hand washing. What about people who do go into an environment where they might be staff in MRSA, such as um, working out at a gym and using their towels, working in a healthcare setting? What kind of laundry practices might be recommended for those people? General laundry is sufficient to remove staff and MRSA from clothing. The key feature that we find in most of these situations is that people aren't doing it after each use. So the football team making sure they launder their their workout gear after they use it, often we find that they aren't in, in many of these situations. It's important in gym settings, you can't control what others are doing, 
we, we want to encourage people to cover any open wounds that they have if they're in these settings where they potentially could have that skin direct contact or that indirect contact, like sharing a weight bench or sharing a, an elliptical trainer or something like that. People can also take the precaution of using a, a physical barrier such as a towel, laying that down on the weight bench so you're not coming in direct contact with those shared surfaces. It's also important that staff and MRSA, it does, if you come in contact with the bacteria, it won't cause an immediate infection. So there's time to wash it off their skin so that good hand washing, that good showering after these activities will go a long way of preventing these infections. Now, if there's a known athlete, say, in a high school gym or locker room that has an MRSA skin infection, does that person need to be excluded from participation and interaction? And and what needs to be done to that athletic facility? For that athlete, they may or may not. It it really depends on the situations. The general, there's some sports that have sports-specific rules on when to exclude an athlete, like wrestling. The general concept is if they can keep that area covered and contained so that pus can't come out and contact other individuals, that they're maintaining good hygiene, that they're washing their hands, that they're showering. Those are situations that are judged case by case, but if they can keep it covered and maintain that good hygiene, there's no reason why they can't participate. Now, there are certain situations where the, the, the physician, the athletic trainer may deem it to pose a risk to the health of the athlete. For instance, if you have a football player where it's over a joint, there's some people that hold a player out because they're concerned that they may take a direct hit or contact that area during competition and, and potentially cause the infection to become worse. So while you know there's not a standard rule for every situation, the general rule is if you can keep it covered and contained and you follow good hygiene practice, then they should be fine to to play. There is one caveat is that no matter whether or not you can keep it contained for activities, people who have open wounds, even if they're not infected, they should really try to avoid going into common water sources. So avoid using the whirlpool or the therapy pool or the swimming pool until your infection or that wound is healed. Now, what about the, any sports equipment that might be involved? Is there any value to disinfecting, say, the showers or the AstroTurf or exercise equipment? So typically, sports equipment, the equipment that they may wear, again, a general cleaning, the manufacturer should provide recommendations one thing that people have to consider is not to destroy the material. There's so many different types of materials and textiles used in athletics and other situations that you have to be careful about the products that you use and making sure that they're safe for those products. When you look at large environmental surfaces like floors, walls, turf fields, there really is little evidence that anything other than just general cleaning needs to be done. I think there was some misinterpretation of some of the information that came out with people getting infections at the site of turf burns. And so there was this marketing of products to spray on your turf fields to prevent MRSA infections. When it was the turf burns allowing the breaks in the skin, the portal of entry for the bacteria, that they were picking up through that direct skin contact with people who had uncovered infections. And so, again, there's really no evidence to support large-scale environmental disinfection.
So does the same hold true then for schools as well? Because I have heard of schools that have completely shut down for full cleaning after MRSA cases. That's the same. There, it, there's no data, little to no data to support fogging of schools, shutting down schools, to clean schools. Now, having said that, there might be certain situations where a school might be shut down or closed for a period of time to educate the student body on what these infections are, the prevention measures. But in general, these decisions need to be made in conjunction with the local health department. Often we find that people are making decisions without having all of the information available. And when they do take the time to to learn about MRSA and how it's transmitted, they tend to take a more informed approach and the, the schools aren't closed. Now, I find that in outbreaks of schools, such as of lice, that parents often get a note saying there's lice in the classroom, please check your child, be careful. Should the whole school community be notified every time there's an MRSA infection that's known in the school? Yeah, typically not. And it's going to be left up to school policy for not only MRSA, but other communicable diseases. What is the school policy for these infections? One thing that should be considered is that individual person? Are they an athlete? Do they play on a team where there might be a risk to, you know, immediate people around them? So while school-wide notification isn't something that routinely should be done, there might be room for notifying that particular athletic team. And I think doing it in a way not to call out an individual person. We've seen so many times where a person's called out as having an infection, and then there's this stigma attached to that they're called dirty, and really we need to be careful about protecting people's personal rights, personal health rights. And I think there's ways to do it, such as educating the team on MRSA and not specifically pointing out an individual. In most situations, there won't be a need, at least for the general school population. But anytime there is an infection, and often we see these get coverage in the local media, in the national media, that's a great time to have a renewed effort to educate what these infections are, what to be on the lookout for, because parents want information. And in today's age of information being available on the Internet and there's a lot of myths and a lot of misinformation, need to take these experiences and use them to, to give them the accurate information. I'd like to thank our guest, Jeffrey Hageman. We've been discussing MRSA and the community. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157, and thank you for listening.